Father, we ask for your spirit to make real to us the glory of a God who is so compassionate that he exerts great effort and communicates great emotion in seeking and saving that which is lost. And I pray for anybody in here who may be lost, that is, they've never truly put their faith in the risen, ruling, resurrected King, Jesus Christ, that today they would be rescued from their sin and adopted into your glorious family. And I pray that we would walk out of here with our hearts beating with love for the lost and that we would see in this summer season new faces here because they have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of your love. We know that this is the kind of prayer that you lean forward to answer. For you told us Jesus' mission was to save his people from their sins. So would you save your people from their sins and ultimately for your glory, we celebrate you now in Jesus' name, amen. I would invite you to complete with me one of Jesus' most well-known sayings. It begins like this. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What he's talking about, of course, is evangelism. That as we follow Jesus, we'll help others follow him as well. Now, if we were to be honest, we can struggle a little bit with the fishing part of following, right? For one, there's the fear of man. What will they think of me? For the other thing, another thing is there's just the, the fast pace of life. We're so busy, busy, busy. And then sometimes there's failure or a sense of past failure. I've tried to share Jesus and it didn't go well. And so we're like, I don't want to do that again. And if we're honest, sometimes we're going through such a struggle in life, you're like, you want me to tell somebody about Jesus, I can barely make it to the end of the day. We've all been there, right? And as a result, our fishing pole, our tackle box, our fishing nets are tucked away behind a stack of boxes in the corner of our garage collecting dust metaphorically. That is, it's been a while since we tried to tell somebody about Christ. Can you identify with that? Now, thankfully, I'm also hearing stories of, of people seeking to do just that, to fish, to evangelize, to, to share the gospel, to proclaim Christ. I'm hearing DNA groups doing it in coffee shops, hearing about people doing it in their workspaces, in their neighborhoods, and in their families. And by the way, do not diminish the value of regularly proclaiming the gospel within the confines of your own household. And that's happening. And that's super encouraging. And that's nothing less than the kindness of God sharpening our focus on the gospel and on reaching the lost. So as Pastor Cleet said, we're doing a three-week series, and all we want to do, all we want to do, is fan that fishing flame that's flickering within all of us. 
And for you, it may be you're in the first group of people, we have all been there, where there's not much of a flame thick flickering, all you have is like a, a pilot light, right? There is, if you're a Christian, there is a pilot light at least burning somewhere. And I'm hoping this series will just, just charge it so your heart becomes ablaze with love for the lost. And for people who already have a fishing flame more than flickering, in their hearts, would, it, would, would the Lord just grow that burden even more? So next week, John is going to preach a powerful message. I've seen his notes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 on our calling to be ambassadors for Christ. Week 3, Pastor Cleet is taking that powerful, awesome, well-known text from Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Today, all I want to do is go to Luke chapter 15. And I want us to walk away with a fresh sense, a fresh awareness of God's heart for the lost. If you would want to put your finger on the pulse of God and his love and burden and compassion for the lost, perhaps there would be no better passage to go to than Luke chapter 15. So if you have a Bible with you, please open up to Luke chapter 15. Now, there's no way, just so you know, I could do a thorough exegesis of these three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and actually lost sons. But we're going to dive in just deep enough to see the heart of Jesus for lost people. Now, let's lay the context real quickly, which verses 1 and 2 gives. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's Jesus. What in the world is a tax collector in that day. Well, the Romans who were occupying the, uh, the, the, the lands of the Jewish people, they had a system of raising taxes in which they would basically bid out to the highest bidder the right to raise taxes for a particular province. So when somebody, say, won the bid at, we would say today, a million dollars to, say, raise taxes in Oakland County, then after they paid that upfront fee, Anything they raised from the populace beyond that million dollars, they pocketed, and they were not very scrupulous. They would uh, raise far more taxes than they needed and line their pockets. They were seen as Benedict Arnold's, as traitors. They were rich, and they were despised. Small group of people who just fed off their um, very, very evil prosperity. Now, what about the, the sinners here? People are unsure. It could mean people who were just living in open, flagrant, red light district kind of sin. Or, in fact, it could mean people who were unclean by Jewish kosher standards because of the jobs they held. Maybe, perhaps they, they had to deal with unclean animals. In any case, they were drawn to Jesus Christ. Now, that's a remarkable statement about Christ, isn't it? That the undesirables of the society, whether the rich or the poor, were drawn to him. And it's not because Jesus played fast and loose with his standards. You know, it's not like because Jesus enjoyed a good, dirty joke. You know, it wasn't like that. He was without sin, right? He's the Holy One of Israel. And yet... There is something inviting about him, something attractive about him. I can think of a guy in my own journey to Christ who was instrumental in my faith. Brian Roberts is his name. He was a, another platoon commander in our battalion. 
And Brian didn't talk like us. Brian didn't live like us. But there was something really inviting and attractive that made me want to be around him and made me want to hear what he had to share. That's the effect Jesus had on the tax collectors and the sinners. And as you can see from verse 2, that really burned the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. They grumbled, and they made this accusation. This man receives sinners and eats with them, which was a true accusation. He did receive sinners, and he did eat with them. But their mentality was, listen, if Jesus were really, truly holy, he wouldn't be hanging out with scumbags like that. He would want to hang out with good and righteous people like us. That was, of course, their mentality. Now, if we were to be honest, we would have to admit we have a little bit of a pharisaical bent within us as well, right? They really bought into that garbage? They really vote that way? They really believe that? They really think that? Now, you have to admit, you can start to feel that way about somebody, right? And you don't care about them. You don't want to be around them. Your mentality is they can just pack sand. And so you maybe, at times, demonize them, even represent their case unfairly or their position, cancel them. And that happens, let's be honest, all across the board. So Jesus tells them three stories. The story of a lost sheep, the story of a lost coin, and the story of lost sons in order to show them what God is really like. That he has a heart for sinners of all kinds. Tax collectors, scribes, Pharisees, and all the rest. Jesus is going to tell them three stories that's going to show them the heart of God, the very God that they are facing face to face. And so all we're going to look at this morning is two aspects of God's heart for lost people that just pop out of a flurry of verbs that happen in the text. Two aspects of God's heart for the lost. Two aspects that I hope we walk out of here. And that is effort and emotion. God takes great effort to reach the lost. If you're a Calvinist, you can certainly agree with that. But if you're an Arminian, you can certainly agree with that, that God does take the initiative. God takes the initiative. He exerts great effort to reach the lost. And he does so with great emotion. Now, I know for some people, you hear God and emotions, and it just makes you, that doesn't even sound right. Sometimes people have misused what's called the doctrine of the impassivity of God. Anybody ever heard of that doctrine? It's rooted in another doctrine of God called the immu Im immutability of God, the unchangeability of God. And that's true. God never changes, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we talk about God having emotions, he doesn't have emotions in the way that we do. Our emotions, for one, are often tainted with sin quite frequently, right? Even our best emotions. And two, 
our emotions are often based on suddenly learning something good or bad that we didn't know earlier, right? But that's not the way it is with the Lord. He's never like, oh, myself, I can't believe this just happened. Now, sometimes he's, the Bible speaks of him anthropomorphically as if he's in time, but we know from Scripture he's over time, all the time, he's omniscient. In fact, God's emotions are, in, in, in point of fact, rooted in his unchanging attributes or perfections or characteristics. For instance, because God is holy, right, he hates sin, that's an emotion, and he will always hate sin. Because God is merciful, then he is compassionate out of that heart of mercy, right? That's one of his attributes. So what we're going to see, I just wanted to clarify that, right? Effort and emotions. Again, we're not going to go real deep in these parables, just enough to draw out these truths. First of all, we want us to see the effort uh, exerted by the parable of the, and the lost sheep. And by the way, you know then that the man looking for the lost sheep and the woman for the, looking for the lost coin, the father waiting for the lost son and trying to reach the other son, that represents the heart of God for the lost. He's telling this story. First of all, in the parable of the lost sheep, uh, let, let's just talk about sheep. Sheep are dumb. And they get themselves into crazy fixes. We wouldn't know anything about that, of course. We never put ourselves in any kind of spiritual fix. Reminded me of a story I heard. You probably heard it before. Um, in Tampa Bay, there was a like a Category 5 massive hurricane coming. Guy clicks on his news. Here's the, uh, the meteorologist say, massive storm coming. You need to get up. Uh, up north, get north of the north of uh, the state line because it's going to be bad across the Panhandle area and all that. Um, and no, he says to himself, "I'm a Christian. God, if God wants to save me, if I'm in a fix, He'll do it." A little bit later, somebody knocks on his door. It's his neighbor saying, "Did you hear about the storm that's coming? Come on, we're driving upstate." No, 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 no. If God, if, if I get in a fix, God will save me. I've asked Him to do that. So he stays there, weathers the night. The storm comes in. Next day, another knock on the door, and now it's the local sheriff saying, we're having an evacuation. you got to get out of here because the storm's only going to get worse. Guy says, nope, I'm a Christian. I've prayed to God. If I'm in a fix, he'll get me out of it. Okay. That night, the water raises so high that he's up on the second story looking at the water covering the first story. And somebody comes up with a boat and says, hey, come on, jump on. We can get you out of here. He says, nope. If I get in a fix, I've prayed. God will get me out of here. Okay. Next night, he's on his roof because the water's gone that high. A helicopter goes overboard. They shovel the bullhorn. We're going to drop down a ladder. You can get out of here and we'll rescue you. He says, nope, 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 nope. I'm a Christian. I've asked God if I'm in a pickle, which clearly he was, he can get me out of here. The storm continues and the guy drowns. And he stands before God and he says, why didn't you ever do anything to get me out of this mess? He said, well... I showed you the news, and then I had a neighbor come through, and then the sheriff came through, and then there was the boat, and then there was the helicopter. We are so dumb and stubborn as sheep, we put ourselves into fixes, and then we tell God exactly how he should get us out of that fix, when sometimes he might be doing it in a way that you wouldn't want or perceive, but that's what he's doing. But this shepherd still goes after the sheep who put themselves in fixes and want to be rescued so often in their own terms. And this is what happens here. 
He leaves the 99, verse 4. He goes after the one that is lost until when? Until he gets tired? Until he runs out of gas? Until he says, well, at least I got the 99. No, until when? Finds it. Have you ever searched for something so much that it just, I mean, it just wears you out? I remember it was seven, eight years ago up uh, north part of Oakland County. Where is Peter? Peter and I went out for an early morning deer hunt. It was during the rut when big bucks make their appearance in broad daylight. And what would have been a trophy buck for me walked right through and I arrowed it, but it was not good shot placement. So it didn't just run 100 yards, it, it ran. And I couldn't find it. And Peter and I, Peter, remember, we spent all day grid searching square miles, crossing a marsh, crossing the woods, crossing some neighbor fields, um, even, even making all the way to a golf course that was a couple miles away. And I was just devastated. I was just thinking, oh, this would have been the greatest deer ever. I was heartbroken. And then it hit me. What if I searched for lost sinners the way I was looking for that buck that I shot? That's what he did there. Until he finds it. And then, verse 5, when he finds it, when he found it, he says, get your butt over here and get out of here. No, he lays it on his shoulder. And I, I don't know what the sheep weighed then, but I'm sure guessing what they weigh now, and according to Mr. Google, a male sheep, fully grown, 99 pounds to 350 pounds. That blew me away. A female sheep, 99 pounds to 220 pounds. So even if it was a smaller sheep, that's a lot of weight. This man was exerting great effort to find and rescue that lost sheep. And Jesus is saying, that's what God is like. That's what I'm like. Then you go to the parable of the lost coin. This would have been about a day's wages. For some, pretty significant thing. In the ancient world, most houses, unless you were wealthy, did not have windows. And there were dirt floors over which they would throw straw to keep dust down in the dry season and mud down in the wet season. Look at what this lady does in this parable. She lights a lamp, sweeps the house. Again, that was a laborious activity with all the straw, maybe clearing the straw and then looking in the dirt. And how hard does she seek passively, half-heartedly, does it say? She seeks diligently until when? Until she finds it. This is no half-hearted search. She's exerting effort to find that lost coin. Now that brings us then to the parable of the lost son. And really, if you know Luke 15, it's, it's really the story of two lost sons. One is lost far away from home because of his badness, and the other son is lost at home because of his goodness. But that's a whole other sermon, and I just want to stay on point with the thrust of this message. You see in verse 20 that his father saw him when he was a long way off. He sees his sin-weathered son walking down the old estate road towards the house. And, and, and the idea, I think, is that you can almost imagine in this parable, 
Every morning, the man sitting on his porch with a cup of coffee saying, maybe today will be the day. Maybe today will be the day my son finally comes to his senses and comes home. And he sees him. And now what does he do after that? He actually ran after him. And you have to understand, in this ancient context, that would have been unheard of. Fathers in that culture didn't do that, especially when the son had done the father like that. You come to me, you sprint, you come right now. What an undignified picture, this man holding up his robe, running as fast as he can towards his sin-weathered son limping home. I think there's enough there to see. Our God is not passive in pursuit of the lost, is he? In the gospel, every person in the Godhead is active. The Father sends his Son. Jesus willingly comes, and the Spirit works to convict. I'll come back to the effort piece, but do you see the effort laid out in these parables to find the lost? Now, second of all, emotion. We'll start down at the bottom with the parable of the lost son. When the father sees the son, as we just noted, he doesn't think to himself or say to him, you disrespectful punk, look at you. You're in the state that you deserve to be in. Smelling like pigs, unclean animals. He, you know, he'd been caring for pigs once he lost all his money and friends. The father doesn't do that. And I think it's also important to note that for the son earlier to say to his dad, hey, I want my inheritance, that was basically saying, I don't give a rip about you, dad. In fact, I don't care if you die. I wish you were dead. Because in that context, fathers didn't, didn't extend their inheritance until after they had passed away because they would need that substance to survive and, until their day of passing. Clearly, the son was basically communicating I care about my pleasure, not you, Dad. Not your security, not your respect, anything like that. But what does the father feel? The father actually feels, in spite of how his son had done him, how does he feel about him? Between the words saw and ran is a key expression. What did he feel? Compassion. He felt compassion. Though his son had slapped him in the face, he feels compassion. And it's just, it's, it's a really cool word in the Greek. Um, has been to do with your bowels and intestines and all of that. It's the kind of thing, if you've ever loved somebody deeply and seen them in a very difficult, painful situation, it literally hurt you inside, right? I mean, it hurts. You see them in that plight and it just breaks your heart. It disturbs your stomach that's how that father felt about his son as he was limping home. It says he feels compassion, he runs to him, and then he embraced him, smelling like pigs and all, he embraced him. Oh, what an expression of affection that was. And fathers, by the way, we should hug our children heartily, often, no matter what their age is. And after that, what does he do? He kisses him. He same. He kisses him. What an expression of affection that is. And then, you know the story, when a son says, I'm not even worthy to be called a son. Just take me back as a hired servant. By the way, that is the reflection of true repentance. 
when you understand you don't deserve a stinking thing. That's repentance. And when a son comes with that kind of repentance, his dad won't hear, he won't have any of that. He tells one of the servants, he'll go get him a robe, put his best robe on him. And by the way, what a picture of the imputed righteousness that is, clothed in righteousness divine, dressed in him alone. And then there's the, the, the ring, authority, there's the shoes, standing, tells them to slay a fatted calf, and they have a party that is so loud, the older brother, when he's, when he's awake, can hear out in the field the singing and the dancing. They celebrate it. That's what it says. And they, verse 24, begin to celebrate. Well, that's emotion right there, isn't it? Compassion over his brokenness and celebration when he's recovered. Let's, let's move back up. Let's go to the top of the passage and look at the parable of the lost sheep again. It says, when he lays it on his shoulder, verse 5, what, what is he feeling? Like, oh, oh no, I'm going to have to carry all this weight back uh, to the house, to the barn? No, he lays it on his shoulders. How? Rejoicing. He's rejoicing. And then, on top of that, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors. And by the way, you tell instinctively other people things that you're excited about in life, right? Whether it's Miggy's 3,000th hit or whatever else, right? You tell people. And he wants to tell people. And then he says this. Rejoice. Not on your own. With me. Rejoice with me. That's what he says. And Jesus says why. Here's the, here's the, here's the, the commentary on this parable. Just so, verse 7, I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And by the way, this is a loving dig at the Pharisees. Like, you think you're okay with God, but you're not. In another place, he says, he did not call, call to come the righteous to repentance. There is no righteous, right? He came to call sinners to repentance. And boy, don't you see the celebration of God when a lost sinner is recovered and restored? Hallelujah! And then we get to the story of the lost coin. Oh, this is so sweet. This woman, when she finds it, she does the same thing. She calls together her friends and neighbors saying what? Rejoice with me. There is effort and there is emotion. Y'all remember during our 10th anniversary celebration, wasn't that a sweet time for those of you who are here of testimonies? It's just so powerful. We got we, we to weave that into our rhythms. The very end, a wee little girl, she's so beautiful. Her name's Betsy. <laughs> she wants to say something to me because I'm in the thing on the testimony part. And I had the audacity. I had no idea what she was going to say. I literally take her and put her up on top of that table in front of everybody. So I just added to the pressure. And she says, I believe in Jesus. And I'm like, wow. And then I ask her a few questions. And she responds with some catechism answers. Clearly, you guys have been working with her and, and Pastor Nick and others. And she confesses Jesus Christ. Now, was your first thing, well, she's just a kid. Or she's just repeating the catechism. By the way, that's where it starts. That's why it's called catechism. You want to go here, and then here, and then here, and then here, and here. But did you think, oh, it's just here and not here? We want to rejoice over that kind of thing, right? 
Little children can come to the Lord, right? And there was celebration that we all felt. Listen, there is effort and emotion behind God's pursuit of the lost. Sometimes people have a distorted view of the gospel. Sometimes people mischaracterize what we call penal substitutionary atonement, PSA. And they have this idea that there's this loving Jesus and there's this mad daddy. No, no. Love was behind it all. 1 John 4.10, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I think John 3.16 brings together the emotion and the effort thing. Where's the emotion? For God so loved the world. Where's the effort? That he gave his only begotten son. Man, oh man, may we have the the heart of the God who not only receives sinners, not only eats with sinners, but actually died for sinners that he might eternally and savingly receive them. And just as in that parable, that man picked up that lost sheep and put it on his shoulders, the father lay on him the iniquity of us all. And it says in 1 Peter 2.24, Christ bore in his own body our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and, hallelujah, live to righteousness. Now, I just got a few principles, a few applications to lay down, and then we're going to sing a song, and Pastor Charles is going to come and lead us in a church dedicating these children and their families to the Lord. Three principles. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Because you always want to read the Bible in context, in the ultimate context is the whole Bible, right? And so there's other scriptures that are helpful as we seek to reflect the heart of the Father in both our effort and our emotion. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16 lays out a principle that we do well to remember in our evangelistic efforts, in our fishing as we follow. It says in verse 15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are are being saved and among those who are perishing. Well, what does it smell like? Well, verse 16, to the one, those who are perishing, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. I thought about bringing a bottle of cologne and a stinky baseball sock, just to make the point. Um, one smells good, another not so good. And what this text is saying is if you will be faithful to Christ, to some, it's going to be like cologne, like nice cologne. And for others, it's going to be like a stinky sock. And the point I, that, that, that I try to remind myself is if we will salvifically, do you feel me on that? Salvifically smell good to some, we got to be willing to stank to some others. If you want to smell like water, what good is that? What does even water smell like? Well, maybe rotten eggs up north, but okay, forget that. Just bland, right? Just bland. When not offending anyone is the almighty goal, we will be no good. Nothing gets in the way of loving our fellow man more than the fear of man. 
and we all fight it. We're wondering, do I really want to risk this rejection, right? Do I really want to risk mischaracterization of what I shared in me as a person? Do I really want to risk just kind of being different or weird or on the outs? And listen, don't all of us, to some degree, fight that internal pressure? I think we all do. And this is why this text is so helpful to remember. So get yourself a bottle of cologne and a sticky sock and remember, you know, you're going to be both as you share Jesus. To some, the fragrance of life, and to others, the stench of death. So be faithful. Faithfulness belongs to us, right? And fruitfulness belongs to to God. So that's a principle to remember. Now, here's a promise to hold on to. Acts 13, 48 says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. How many who were ordained to eternal life? How many? 65%? 98% even? No, 100%. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. What I'm trying to say is this, based on the authority of God's word, when we're fishing, we're fishing in a stocked pond. Imagine there's two ponds you could fish in. One over here, you don't know if there's any fish in there. For all you know, there's, nobody's pulled a fish out of there ever. This other pond over here, you have it on the authority of the owner of that pond that there's fish in it because he stocks it every springtime. Now, in this one fish that you don't know if any fish has ever been caught in, you might fish a couple afternoons, a couple mornings, and after you get no bites, you don't pull anything out, you might just quit. You're like, what's the use of it, right? But this pond that's been stocked, come on. Now, you may, you may have a couple dry fishing days, or dry fishing weeks, seasons. You may have to get creative and say, well, maybe I need to use a different lure, a different time of day, a different tactic, whatever. But you're going to keep fishing. Why? Because you have it on the authority of the owner of that pond. There are fish in that pond, and you're going to draw them out. And that's why the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is not meant to make us passive and to paralyze us, but to exhort us and to encourage us into believing evangelism because God does have a people for his name he will save. Amen? And then finally, what about a plan to reach the lost? I have the privilege of serving as a church planning catalyst for the EFCA to periodically go to Chicago and do church planning assessments as I did a few weeks ago. And there's always a question. It's a long couple days of grilling and asking questions and, and all kinds of things. But usually one of the questions that people ask is, what is your plan to reach the lost in your community? And they will inevitably roll out some sexy church planning strategy, as, as we all did. Inevitably, they'll use big words like attractional, or more frequently, incarnational and missional, and all that other stuff. Sometimes there's fancy diagrams, and this one guy had this really cool flow chart and all the rest. And that's all good. Like, we, we need to plan, right? We need to think critically. We need to strategize. We need to cast vision. We need to, we need to cast uh, leadership um, excitement. We need to implement all that stuff. But the older I get, and I look back at some of the stuff we wrote when we started the church, I'm like, oh, I would just want to burn some of those things. Right? I don't. 
Whatever your church planting cake is, it boils down to these three stock essential ingredients. And sometimes I'd like to think of that if we, if we just us and our Bibles with nothing else on an island and we were to ask God the question, hey, Lord, how do we reach the lost? I think it would boil down to three things. Whatever the, the style and all the rest. Pray, love, and proclaim. Think about, remember Billy Bernard, that, that, that powerful message? Some of you guys are still talking about from several weeks ago. A brother from Houston. He preached on that text where Jesus said, this kind cannot happen except how? By prayer. This kind. Jesus taught men ought always to pray and faint not. He told stories, other parables about prayer, about asking and seeking and knocking. He talks about this nag of a woman who keeps bugging this sinful judge, this unjust judge. And finally he answers and he says, listen, if an unjust judge will answer somebody when they keep on coming, how much more your heavenly father? He talks about prayer so much. And I just think prayer, if you could kind of like uh, measure it in its significance in the scripture, it would just like this infinite line into the sky. But I think in our thinking and our practice, it's often more like that. There's so much we can pray about when it comes to reaching the lost, isn't there? I mean, so much. How about we start with, I want to pray for my heart that, I, that I'll have a burden for the lost. Right? And that then I'll have boldness to speak the truth to the gospel. That God will give me opportunities to do that. That there'll be illumination for the person I'm talking to because they're darkened in sin. That there would be conviction in their heart. That we would pray against Satan, the God of this world who seeks to blind the minds of those who believe not. That God would create in them a thirst for righteousness. There is so much to pray for when it comes to praying for the lost. So I have a question for myself, and I have a question for you. What does your prayer cost you? What does your prayer cost you? Does it ever cost you sleep? Does it ever cost you your pride? Because you, you try and get serious about prayer. The Lord's going to be like, you need to confess this. You need to get this right. Like if you want to draw close to me, you got to get some things right. It's, it's humbling, isn't it? You sacrifice comfort. And how about the patience to keep on praying when you don't see an answer yet, right? And the perseverance. What if we hit our knees like we hit our hobbies or the gym or our TV controller? James 5.16 says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man has much power in its working. Now the righteousness is through Christ, but we're to be fervent through Christ in praying. I think that prayer that doesn't cost much may not be worth much. If prayer was such a waste of time, then Jesus would not have commanded us to pray in the ways that he did and model that himself. 
So prayer has to be the foundational approach. As John taught in our evangelism training yesterday, people are dead in sin, right? You're not, you're not trying to give good advice. You're trying to see resurrection. We have no power to do that, and yet we're called to do that. And the God who calls us to do that does it through us. And that's why we need to call upon him. And then there's love. Genuine, genuine, genuine care for people, right? Genuine empathy. Genuine care and concern for the plight of people. Like I said in the introduction, we often have pharisaical hearts, right? You vote that way? You think that way? You bought into that stuff? I don't want to be around you. Get away from me. And then we mischaracterize, demonize, and often cancel, and it happens across the board. I don't know. Sometimes you just got to get off social media, right? I, I found that out. And sometimes you just got to limit what you're looking at, and we got to feed on the Word of God so that we can be connected to the heart of God for lost people. It says about Jesus that when he saw people having gone astray, he didn't say, well, that's because of the decision you made. That's because who you're following or who you're like, whatever. No, he had compassion on them as sheep without shepherd. Now, when we say love, we've got to be careful to note this, that love as God defines it, right? So there's grace and truth. So go back to that principle, stinky socks and cologne. So being loving doesn't mean you're loved by everyone, but it means you truly love them enough to walk the truth and speak the truth by the grace of God in their lives. And then finally, proclaim. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 10 as we close. Romans chapter 10. We went through this text yesterday in our evangelism training. What a powerful text. Just check out the logic. We'll start in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? Yeah, that's a good question. And then how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And as we said yesterday, that's just not like pulpit preaching. That's just sharing Christ, proclaiming Christ in a wide range of, of ways and venues. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's where we get our, our, our name, Beautiful Feet Team, from. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For, Lord, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And he's saying, you know, you're going to be like sticky socks to some. It's not going to all be cologne. But then this, verse 17, so faith comes how? Hearing, and not just hearing any old thing, hearing what? Hearing through the word of Christ. So much evangelism, I would rather, I think, more accurately be call, called uh, feel-goodism. Not actually evangelism. Like evangel means good news, right? The gospel. Sometimes people say, we went out evangelizing. Well, what would you tell them? That God loves them. That's not, you're telling them about an attribute of God, but that's not evangelism. In fact, that might even lead them deeper into their hardness. Well, yeah. But we also got to talk about the truth of God and the holiness of God and the judgment of God. And all of that is caught together in the gospel, right? So here's some opportunities to, to, to put some feet to pursuing the heart of God, effort and emotion. 
If you have a handout, you see there's some opportunities. I don't know why I've been so stuck on March. Like every announcement, I've used the word March. It's going to happen March 17th. Oh, next year? No. So that's May, as Pastor Cleet corrected it. It's March 2nd. We are going to Chicago for another night, May 2nd. I did it again, didn't I? Yeah, wow. I have month dyslexia, I guess, something like that. So May 2nd, noon. He's going to lead the charge. We are going to Chicago to do some street evangelism. And I hope you can come. It will probably put you outside of your comfort zone if you haven't done it before. But then I think you'll have incredible Holy Spirit comfort as you recall the experience you had as, as, as the men did. And we have several ladies coming, I think, this, well, this time as well. So please come to that. Then we have something called Beautiful Feet Training um, we had it yesterday, actually. We, we, we started, and we, we did our first lesson, uh, John and I. Uh, Pastor Cleet recorded it, and hopefully it'll be uploadable. And if you want to partake of that teaching, please let him know. Our next beautiful uh, feet team training is May 7th. May 7th, that's 9 to 10.30 sharp. And then starting May 21st, the first and third Saturday of every month, we'll have a beautiful team event. We've got some ideas lined up already in a local grocery store in the parking lot there. Various things, and we'll roll more details about that in the future. But if you could just calendar the first and third Saturdays, we will give you more details about how you can engage in these beautiful feet team outreach events. And then finally, the second and fourth Wednesdays of every um, week, every month, we have our midweek fellowship, right? We gather for a meal and Bible study and prayer. We are going to hit the streets. And we're just going to love, uh, love, love our neighbors by walking uh, through the neighborhood, knocking on doors, praying for people, sharing the gospel. You, your comfort level may not be uh, very high. You might feel a bit timid about certain things. Don't worry. We're not, we want you to push the envelope for you, but we're not going to say you need to go from a two to a nine. But we're asking you maybe to go from a two to a three or a three to a four, right? And we can do that together. So people have different roles in these outreach opportunities. We're asking families to come on Wednesdays. Not, not, not to stay back in the post office, but everybody to come. Because there's something powerful about children seeing their parents seek to engage people with Christ. In fact, I think it gives validity to their parents' faith. Like if you're telling me we have a faith that can set us free, that deliver me from the eternal judgment of God and adopt me into God's family, and I never hear you tell anybody? Like, do you even really believe that's true? That's just churchianity and religiosity? So there's something powerfully validating kids see their parents seek to engage the lost. Well, that was a lot of information, wasn't it? But I hope you walk away with this. We want to reflect God's heart for the lost. Two words, what are they? Amen. Tom, if you and Josh would come, I want to in ask you, to implore you, to not turn off and say, okay, we've got the baby dedication coming after this next song. Maybe square up with the Lord and say, Lord, I, I, I want you, wherever I'm at, whether it's just that, that pilot light, would you get it going? Now, whether it's a, it's a lane, it's, it's a flame that's, that is kind of getting big and, 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 and hot and your heart's becoming warm for the loss, that he would just 
blow on that fishing flame even more. And maybe you're saying, I'm actually a lost person. Yeah. I remember when that hit me. Like, these people are talking about being a Christian. I've always thought I'm a Christian, but being an acolyte didn't make me a Christian. Going to church Christmas and Easter didn't make me a Christian. I had never seen my sin and trusted Christ. I'm sure there's somebody in the room, some people in the room like this. And this could be the day in which you are brought into the family of God, into the kingdom of God. There'll be a few people back near that AV booth. You can see it in the back. And if you need prayer, you need counsel from the Bible, we would love just to, just to talk with you, to pray with you, and to open up the Bible with you as well. Amen? Father, please use these moments to take the truth of a God who passionately and persistently seeks the lost into our heart so we walk out of here reflecting that passionate pursuit ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name.